Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back listeners, Dr. Sam Williams here back for our second episode of this crucial topic of rheumatoid arthritis with Dr. Ariane Laws, consultant rheumatologist based in Glasgow. We take a deep dive into the investigations, management, all of the examiner questions and lastly Ariane's quiz the consultant on her specialist subject of roller derby is definitely not one to miss so stay tuned for that at the end of the show. And once again we pay tribute to the generous donators over on our Buy Me A Coffee page. Congratulations to Emma who recently passed. There was a double win for Aisha and Jay who both passed after listening. Abbas as well passed first time. Thank you to Liz, thank you to Charlie after their passes. But one special listener gets the show dedication and that is Moly for donating an absolutely staggering amount on the Buy Me A Coffee page. Thank you all for your generosity. Congratulations again on your success. But for now, let's get into part two of our chat with Dr. Ariane Laws on rheumatoid arthritis. And so the next thing really would be discussing uh, the investigations for your patient. And so this may obviously differ depending on the presentation, but Ariane, what would you expect uh, a candidate to list off as sort of the first raft of investigations for a, a presentation, which is probably in keeping with uh, rheumatoid? Yeah. So, I mean, do the simple things first. So you want to be saying, I want to do some bloods. And I tried to in the exam, think about, you know, I'm going to talk about bloods first, then I'll think about imaging and then I'll, whatever they want me to get onto. But so bloods first, full blood count. We've talked about anemia. You may have the um, elevated platelet count because of the inflammatory response as well. We've talked about Felty's syndrome as well. Like what is their white cell count doing? You want their inflammatory markers, CRP, your ESR or your plasma viscosity, depending on what your lab does is that elevated that makes it more likely to be and it's almost always elevated in a flare of um seropositive rheumatoid so you want to be seeing what that's showing 
You want your use and ease, I mean, partly to do with treatment. So if they have been on anti-inflammatories, we talked a bit about um, nephrotic syndrome as well. Not only are you wanting to know what your use and ease are doing, which may be normal in that case, you want to know what your albumin is. You'd be thinking about, I know I said stick to blood tests, but you'd be wanting to think about urine dipstick testing and urine protein creatinine ratio or albumin creatinine ratio checking for the, your sort of nephrotic syndrome. Jumping back to bloods, like I said, I wasn't going to jump about. Um, <laughs> LFTs, if they're already, if this is that second patient that we talked about, where they're already established disease, they're already on treatment. Your drugs could have affected that. What, some of the differentials we've talked about: IBD-associated arthritis, reactive arthritis. So whatever infection has upset your eyes, your urinary tract, and your joints could also have um, given you deranged LFTs as well. You're thinking about doing a rheumatoid factor and an anti-CCP antibody usually would tend to do both of those. Um, you know, that those being negative doesn't mean it's not rheumatoid arthritis, but it puts you in a different risk category for progression and makes maybe what's a bit of a weak history in terms of the sort of symptoms and the way it's presented, you know, where you'd think, mm, is this inflammatory, is this not, might make you keep that patient on in clinic and sort of push that up your differential um, and when we're sort of talking about the other things that this could be whether you want to be doing an HLA B27 thinking about your seronegative spondyloarthritides there as well and again entirely possible to have those and be HLA B27 negative but it does put you in a higher risk group and might make you interpret investigation findings and history findings differently. Yeah fantastic and I thought we'd just hover on rheumatoid factor just for a, a short period of time. So I wonder if you could just expand a bit on on what exactly is rheumatoid factor and how does it feed into your decision-making as a rheumatologist when you're seeing these patients on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's one of those things that we do get a lot of referrals in for, you know, this person has a bit of joint pain or for some reason I've done a rheumatoid factor and it's positive. Do they have rheumatoid arthritis? Do, I, do you want to see them in clinic? So it's an um, IgM autoantibody against the FC fragment of IgG. It is positive in most people with rheumatoid arthritis. It is asso- more associated with the extra-articular features of so things like your um, pulmonary fibrosis, your eye changes, the sort of vasculitis type picture and um, neuropathies that we used to see much more of in rheumatoid arthritis before we got much better at treating it but it's not entirely specific so present in five percent of people who don't have anything wrong with them it can go up in infection it's often just a sign that your immune system's a bit unhappy (laughs) so it's not the first you know it's positive in plenty of patients with sepsis it's positive in a higher proportion of patients with um, Sjogren syndrome than it is patients with rheumatoid arthritis so that's why in your history you've asked all of those sort of other questions about associated connective tissue diseases and things like that as well it doesn't clinch the diagnosis but it does make you think more about it and think more about those extra articular signs I bet Dr Sjogren is gutted that it should really have been Sjogren's factor but now it got taken off them because of this condition when actually it's more prevalent in Sjogren's than rheumatoid. Absolutely. I think he got plenty of other things named after him, <laughs> I'm sure. And then um, 
Ariane, just touching on a couple of other things which may or may not be relevant in this case, but are probably tests which you're more accustomed to requesting than I am, which is ANA and Anchor. And so how can we add these into our decision-making process? Are they relevant at all in this sort of situation? It's always really difficult. So it kind of depends. So anti-nuclear antibodies, your ANA, it can be positive in rheumatoid arthritis, It can also be positive in a significant proportion of, again, the normal population who doesn't have any disease. So it's very much about interpreting it in context. So I talked about how in lupus you can have an inflammatory arthritis. So actually, if this patient does have a small joint symmetrical polyarthritis, but actually they also say they've had a rash on their face when you ask them about rashes, particularly in sunlight, and you examine them and they do have a rash that's sort of sparing the nasolabial folds, so is photosensitive. You ask a bit more and they've got other um, connective tissue symptoms, dry eyes, dry mouth, mouth ulcers, particularly on the hard palate, Raynaud's phenomenon, all of that sort of stuff. The patient we talked about, um, pericarditis, didn't we? You know, who has sort of that serositis type picture, you'd be thinking more along the lines of connective tissue disease of lupus. You'd be more thinking about doing an A&E there for that sort of thing, as opposed to routinely doing it in somebody that you thought had band or rheumatoid arthritis. And you said anchor as well. I'd expect it to be negative. Um, I mean, sometimes anchor is positive in other stuff as well, again, sepsis particularly, but in this context, unless they had something that made me think it, you know, that um, patient with the weight loss and the fever and things like that, that made me wonder about vasculitis with a sort of inflammatory arthritis associated with it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't routinely suggest it unless there was something specific in the history and things that made me think about it. Yeah, brilliant. And then, I mean, we've talked about blood tests and I guess the next thing would be imaging. So what sort of imaging do you routinely request for these uh, for these patients? So I, in the rheumatoid arthritis patient, the new patient in clinic, the NICE guidance suggests um, that everybody should get x-rays of their hands and their feet done. So plain films of hands and feet so that you can have a baseline and we'll often update that later on in their course of disease to see because if they present with you know actual changes you can see on x-ray that puts them in a much higher risk group for progressive symptoms progressive disability and you might be a bit more aggressive with your treatments and things like that to stop it so you might see soft tissue swelling on the plain film you might see juxtarticular osteopenia there could be um, some joint space narrowing and erosions particularly if this is a sort of later presentation or you're that second patient who's already been on treatment but has maybe had some erosions over time before they got on um, effective treatment. And you may see, we talked about the betonia deformities and things like that, you might see sort of slightly funny shaped or like overlapping joints because of the 2D nature of the of a picture of a 3D thing. And we might also do a chest x-ray looking for pulmonary fibrosis type changes um, as well. And then moving on to the management of our patients. And so I guess when the new format of PACES comes up, 
you'll definitely have more time to expand on this. But this, again, is going to be something the examiners are going to expect you to have a good grasp of. So, Ariane, when it comes to the holistic management as well as the medical management of these patients, what are the uh, cornerstones of managing uh, patients with rheumatoid once a diagnosis is established? So it's very, it's very much a team sport. So you're wanting to get the whole of the MDT involved right from the beginning. It's in the NICE guidelines that patients should be seeing the, a physiotherapist to try and treat any symptomatic joints to try and maintain joint function. If your physio is able to do sort of joint injections and things like that. I talked about how 50% of our rheumatoid arthritis patients at two years either aren't working at all or aren't working in the job that they were when they were diagnosed. So that's even with all of our fancy drugs and our like treat to target disease activity scores and things like that. So thinking about getting occupational therapy on board to make things easier at home, are you going to need to involve social work to sort of think about housing and things like that? Hopefully we'll manage to settle people's disease down quickly enough that they don't need social work, but thinking about that as well. And as well, scoring systems that you can use, like the health assessment questionnaire and things like that to really pin down what impact this is having on them. And as well, great as you are as the trainee, as the rheumatologist or whatever, they probably want to sort of think about patient groups and support groups and things like that, because unless you do have rheumatoid arthritis as well, you kind of don't know what they're going through as in the same way that they do. So actually signposting them to support groups. Locally, we tend to um, use the versus arthritis leaflets um, and they, in the back of them, have um, links to um, sort of support groups and other things that patients might be interested in, as well as talking a lot about diet treatments and things like that as well that they can do. Yeah, brilliant. And there's one thing which you mentioned there about monitoring of symptoms. And you mentioned uh, the, I think you meant earlier on, you mentioned about the disease activity score. And, and so is that something you use routinely for your patients in clinic? So yeah, it's how we assess which joints are active. It gives you, a, you plug in all of the details. So you plug in the number of tender joints, the number of swollen joints from that little picture of the wee dude with the circle over his, uh, over his joints. You put in what's called a visual analogue score. So it's a scale of one to 10 on how their arthritis has affected them over the last couple of weeks. And they sort of mark on the line how badly or well they feel that they've been doing. And you combine that with either the CRP or the ESR, plug it into the computer, and it gives you a number. If that number is above 5.1 and they've tried two um, conventional DMARDs already, you'd be thinking about escalating to biologic therapy. It's coming in that we're using it for moderate disease activity as well. So not only can it qualify people for certain drugs, you can also see that you're making an improvement or not making an improvement and compare them over time to um, what they're doing. So yeah, particularly in England, it is the gatekeeper to the more expensive medicines that we use in rheumatology. So yeah, um, we should be better at putting it on every patient's clinic letter every time we see them, but yeah, it's definitely something that we use a lot. I guess moving on to the medical sides of treatment, you mentioned about DMARs, but I wonder um, if we can, I guess, talk through the the sequence of usual treatments that the patients normally try before you then consider DMARs. And then we'll, if you're able to expand a bit on biologic therapy as well, that would be great. 
Yeah, so we sort of talked about the new patient presenting who's already tried very anal- various analgesic options, you know, from paracetamol all the way up your uh, analgesic ladder. They may have tried anti-inflammatories, whether that's just ibuprofen or they've gone to their GP and their GP has tried naproxen with PPI of your choice. I also suggested that maybe they'd had some steroids from the GP and sometimes they will have been treated with a short course of oral steroids prior to um, attending clinic or actually once you've made the diagnosis, because anything I give somebody, any DMAD I give somebody, you know, the quickest we usually say it works is about three months. So if you've already been miserable for three months, you don't want to wait another three months and I don't want you to be having inflammation and potentially accruing joint damage for three months. So whether that's oral steroids, intramuscular steroid or targeted steroid injection into problematic joints. Up to NSAIDs is where they might come to clinic. They might have had some steroids, but that's probably something you don't be thinking about offering them at the end of this consultation um, if they have active disease. And then you're thinking about initially your conventional DMADs. So ideally methotrexate if they uh, have active inflammatory disease. So used as a Initially as tablet form, usually, usually starting at 10 or 15 milligrams taken once a week. They do need to be on folic acid supplementation at least once a week as well. You can use it six days out of seven, avoiding the day of their methotrexate dose, particularly if they're having side effects like GI upset and mouth ulcers, but at least once a week to minimise the risk of the myelosuppression of the methotrexate. But there are other sort of side effects that you can get. I mentioned GI upset. We talked about methotrexate pneumonitis earlier as well. That's probably less of a beast than we thought. And a lot of what's historically been interpreted as being methotrexate pneumonitis has been interstitial lung disease related to their rheumatoid. And actually, these are the patients we often end up looking after in conjunction with respiratory colleagues. There can be a role in suppressing the interstitial lung disease of rheumatoid arthritis with methotrexate, which seems kind of backwards. So I'm not saying that pneumonitis doesn't exist, but it's probably less of a thing than we sort of previously thought it was. Hair loss, people say they get headaches. Sometimes people just feel absolutely rubbish on it and it's not the medication for them. But if GI upsets the problem that they're saying that they have in your scenario or in your clinic, you can give it a subcut as well and I always mention this to patients as well you should not be given trimethoprim when you're taking methotrexate I mean you should stop taking it when you're unwell with infection anyway and restart it the following week but because they're both antifolate you can end up worsening that myelosuppression effect so I always like write it down for people so that they know what not to get like in case somebody misses that they're on methotrexate and the outvirus GP you're in AMU somewhere but also that potentially could be a scenario, you know. Absolutely. Lady, uh, lady with rheumatoid arthritis comes in, recently treated for a UTI, completely run down and with a nasty infection or something like that. And you'd be expected to pick up on that sort of thing. So, yeah, really, really important. What other sort of DMARs do you regularly use to try and control disease activity? Yeah, so um, the next thing that we would usually add in if they're able to take methotrexate as in you know, they've not had side effects with it, they're not somebody immediately planning to become pregnant or anything like that, um, would be sulfasalazine. Again, similar list of side effects, similar blood monitoring, so full blood count, liver tests. Um, 
always warn people, it does make your pee and all of your body secretions a slightly odd shade of yellowy orange, because I think otherwise sometimes people are a bit freaked out when the first time they pee, like <laughs> you've never eaten too much beetroot uh, and you think you're dying. Uh, <laughs> I always warn people about that. But the advantage of sulfasalazine is it is safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And if you're wanting to look around things to do with pregnancy and breastfeeding and actually whether the male partner can have these drugs, there's a really good British Society for Rheumatology guideline on pregnancy that if you want to sort of read further, you can go and have a look at around that side of things. Again, the commonest thing that people get with sulfasalazine is sickness. And sometimes that's just bad enough that they just can't take it. Um, and the other one, I mean, there's hydroxychloroquine. Doesn't require any blood test monitoring, but does require eye monitoring um, for retinal toxicity. So um, you'd want them to get an eye test done within six months of starting it, ideally including OCT and visual fields, depending on what your local services. So the Royal College of Ophthalmology Guidance is different to what lots of places locally can actually provide from an ophthalmology point of view. So at the minute, most people are getting the sort of six month within six months eye check, and then at five years with the sort of two yearly routine not on hydroxychloroquine eye tests done, and then yearly after that, and more frequently if there's other problems going on. And the big thing that um, often stops you taking any of that, it's the one that takes longest to work, so up to six months to work. So I wouldn't be using it for anybody with really florid disease as a sort of first line treatment. But also sometimes people are allergic to it. And I've seen people with really horrible exfoliative, itchy rashes. Um, you just need to stop it, give them some cream, give them some antihistamines and wait for it to settle down. So I always warn them about that. And I guess the other one that we might think about is leflunamide which requires similar monitoring to methotrexate with your full blood count and liver tests, adding in blood pressure monitoring and initiation of antihypertensive therapy if needed. The big thing about it is it hangs around for a lot longer, so it can be still detected at two years after stopping taking it. So if you develop myelosuppression with it, if somebody comes in pancytopenic, they may need a cholestyramine washout. And if somebody gets pregnant on it by accident, the others are out of your system. So sulfazalazine, hydroxychloroquine, entirely safe in pregnancy. Methotrexate can be associated, is, is teratogenic. Doesn't necessarily, you know, you don't have to sort of say absolutely 100% you need to go for a termination. There's no way that this is going to be a viable pregnancy. But with um, Leflunamide, at least there is a sort of washout. You can use cholestyramine to try and get rid of it quickly and allow either your cell count to um, recover or the possibility of continuing with the pregnancy. Yeah, amazing. And I guess the last class of drugs, which you will know well far more than most about, is the biologic therapy. Maybe I wonder if you can just expand on some of those for us. What are the most common biologics that you tend to use and what are the sort of adverse effects which our candidates should uh, look out for? Yeah so I mean I guess the the first ones that we had and the biggest ones that you'd want to be naming first here is probably your anti-TNFs. So things commonly that we'd use like etanercept, adalimumab, um, sometimes infliximab if they've been on it for a while and you know, sertilizumabs and all of that there are plenty. Um, and they're biosimilar um, brothers and sisters now that we can get them slightly cheaper. 
um, says the rheumatologist slightly cheaper. <laughs> All of these are obviously more immunosuppressant than um, the conventional DMADs. They do require screening for TB, for HIV, for hepatitis and things before initiation. Um, and potentially um, anti-TB therapy before starting if somebody has reason to be at risk of TB and has a equivocal T-spot test. So you might end up initiating therapy at the same time as giving them their sort of TB treatment. Big risk of is of infection. So you want to make sure that you're recommending them the appropriate um, vaccinations. Also with your methotrexate and things, so your flu vaccine yearly, a once-off Pneumovax vaccination, whatever COVID vaccines, and make sure they've got their sort of like routine other vaccines done as well, or at least know that they should. Making sure they know what to do if they develop infection. So if they do have problems with infection, they should be stopping taking that medication and restarting it the following week once they're definitely feeling better and accessing help sooner than they normally would for sort of a chest infection or something like that, not just waiting for it to go away like they might have done previously. We wouldn't tend to use them in somebody who had a family history or certainly a personal history of demyelination because of the risks around that. So that's the anti-TNFs, really. Um, you've then got rituximab, your anti-CD20, um, which is an infusion, um, which is given um, as two infusions two weeks apart roughly every six months. Sometimes we can spread that out a little bit. We're using a bit less of that at the minute. It does seem to have a slightly higher risk of morbidity and mortality with COVID than our other treatments, but it is still used in particular in, you know, it's used for other diseases as well, but particularly in people who are already on it. It's maybe safer in those people with histories of malignancy. I mean, none of our drugs have been proven to increase the risk of solid tumours aside from skin cancers. There's some question around lymphoma, but again, I don't think anything solid has been sort of stuck on it. Rituximab is used in various chemotherapy regimes, so it's maybe a better choice in that circumstance. There's tocilizumab and cerilumab, your anti-IL-6 drugs. More recently, there's the JAK inhibitors, like your upadacitinib, baricitinib, and all of those, which have increased risk of clotting and of reactivation of shingles. Um, and then abatacept as well, so your um, sort of small molecule targets. And again, abatacept, often recommended in patients who have problems with infection. If you're needing the sort of biologic therapy, that's probably the one to go for. It's probably more than you need to know for pieces, but um, I seem to remember my question that I was asked at the end. I had the two minutes to go at the end was name some drugs used in rheumatology and rheumatoid arthritis. So I just got to list as many as I could and we ran out of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say this is all fantastic, but I think the expectation is probably to know maybe the main three or four DMARDs, what are usually used as first line and anything beyond that. I think it's reasonable in patients just to say, you know, this this patient should uh, certainly be referred to the, to a rheumatology clinic for consideration for biologic therapy if it's uh, not controlled on two DMARDs. So yeah, important to know the adverse effects of these medications and also where you would consider escalating to uh, a rheumatologist for further treatment. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I'd expect you to know names of drugs, maybe, but yeah, I'm not. I wouldn't expect you to know all of that about all of those. Absolutely, not a lot of time in these uh, in these stations. Yeah, absolutely. But again, this is something which may change when the new format of paces comes around. And so, 
with that in mind, towards the end, if there is any time left, you're going to be faced with your common examiner questions. And something I think we've covered pretty comprehensively so far through this episode, one of the common ones, what are the extra articular manifestations of rheumatoid? I think we've done that to death. So we're just going to rattle through eye signs. You've got neck signs, atlantoaxial subluxation, interstitial lung disease. You've got skin manifestations, serositis, so pericarditis, pleural effusions, renal disease, which we'll come on to in a moment, with some or neurological manifestations. You can sometimes have mononeuritis multiplex, peripheral neuropathy is something we can see, and the hematological manifestations, myelosuppression, anemia of chronic disease, and breathe. <laughs> I think we did cover most of those as well during earlier on, so we've passed our paces exam here. We, <laughs> we did. And the, the next thing, again, which we have mentioned already, we talked about anemia in rheumatoid arthritis, and you're thinking anemia of chronic disease, Felty syndrome, which I know is typically neutropenia, but I think it can be associated with pancytopenia as well. You've got myelosuppression associated with the DMARDs, as we've just discussed. Pernicious anemia associated with auto uh, autoimmune disease is something to think about, as well as these patients, uh, if they've used NSAIDs on a chronic basis without the protection of a PPI, a GI bleed or an occult uh, GI bleed is something to think about as a potential cause of anemia. And then, Ariane, there's two final questions which uh, I wanted to come on to, one of which is sort of similar to our anemia question, but also um, relevant to these patients is renal impairment. So you may find that your patient with rheumatoid has uh, some form of renal impairment. So what could the uh, explanation be for a patient presenting with a renal impairment with rheumatoid? Your number one cause would be use of anti-inflammatories causing interstitial nephritis. I think I mentioned it earlier, but yeah, absolutely. That'd be a number one thing. And it might be the thing that they come to clinic with already because that's what they've been started on by the GP. There's a certain amount of renal toxicity from some DMADs and particularly things like methotrexate. You'd think about dose reduction in patients with renal impairment. We'd sort of talked about pernicious anemia as association of autoimmune disease causing anemia, glomerular nephritis with other autoimmune um, disease. And less common now with better disease control, but renal amyloid, so AA amyloidosis related to chronic inflammation causing renal impairment through amyloid deposition. But it, it used to be the number one cause of amyloid, but we got so good at treating people that now we can blame the haematologists um, for being the number one um, people responsible for amyloid with AL amyloid. So less common now, but definitely something to think about, and particularly in patients who've been difficult to treat because of you know, problems with uh, treatment reactions or just really difficult disease that won't do what you want it to. Yeah, fantastic. And then speaking of difficult disease, um, our final question from the examiners, which is a, a possibility, is what would be the features of uh, a rheumatoid patients which might signify a poor prognosis? Yeah, so some of these are a bit linked. So being rheumatoid factor positive or anti-CCP antibody positive, which leads on to a greater risk of having extra articular features, of having erosive disease, and erosive disease particularly significant if it's early on in the presentation. So when they first arrive, they've had 
you know, they've had less than a year of symptoms and they've already got erosions, that's kind of worrying and you're wanting to think about getting them seen at your early arthritis clinic as often as possible to get them escalated through therapy. You don't often check it, but being HLA-DR4 positive is associated and also women can have worse disease as well. So that's usually what you're, what you're looking at for the poor, prognosis fa- poor prognostic factors. Fantastic. Well, Ariane, I think we've comprehensively covered rheumatoid arthritis. We've talked through the history, the examination, differential diagnosis, investigations, management and examiner questions. So now it's time to turn the tables and give you your very own questions on roller derby in Quiz the Consultant. As usual, just a quick nod over to our podcast partner, PassTest.com. Of course, PassTest Paces Revision Resource has videos directly related to rheumatoid arthritis, which should perfectly complement this episode of the podcast when you come to revise this common Paces topic. So to get access, just click the link labeled PassTest in the show notes. It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultants. Welcome, Dr. Ariane Laws, to your Quiz the Consultant. Now, you told us at the start of the show, but if you can remind us, what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? Um, So I've chosen the sport of roller derby and I've chosen it because I play roller derby for Glasgow Roller Derby. And it's just great. It's a contact sport on roller skates and um, I've been doing it now since 2014. So it's been a while. We'll be heading off to Liverpool soon to play the Liverpool Rollerbirds. Um, Sisters of Mersey is what the A-team is called, which I always think is brilliant. Uh, there's lots of great names in roller derby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm just going to say for our listeners, if you, like me, didn't know what roller derby was before listening to this podcast, I implore you, just search it on YouTube. And I I just searched roller derby world championships or world cup. It is absolutely wild. So <laughs> I'm not going to go in too much because it, it might well spoil some of the answers to the questions. But uh, Ariane, this is how we play Quiz the Consultant. There are 10 questions in total. You can try for the answer without the multiple choice options, which you can get two points for. But if you're not sure and you need a little bit of a helping hand, you can go for the multiple choice options, which if you get it correct, you'll get one point. So there's 20 points to play for. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one. Roller derby is played in two periods of 30 minutes split into episodes called jams. But how long does a conventional jam last for as long as it's not stopped prematurely? Two minutes. And she's off the mark. That's two points for two minutes. Question number two. What is the maximum number of players allowed in the entirety of a roller derby team? I think they changed this recently. I should say caveat that this information is from Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is 15. It is 15. Well, at least that's what it was on Wikipedia. (laughs) For another two points. Me and Wikipedia are both equally up to date then. <laughs> <laughs> Question number three. 
There are three positions in Roller Derby. Name all of them. Well, I can do this one. So there is the jammer, who's your point scorer with the star on the helmet. There is your pivot, who's got the stripe on the the stripey cover on the helmet. And there is also the blocker, who are the hard-working and most um, common member of the team. And you got two points for that question, and you got the two points for the next question, which was <laughs> how how do you uh, mark out the jammer compared to the other members of the team? So yeah, it's a star on the helmet. That was question four. Yeah, I'm doing well here. <laughs> yeah, pressure's on. Question number five: What happens to a player that receives a penalty from the referee? Um, they have to go to the penalty bin for thirty seconds. That's correct. For, for another two points. Question number six. How many penalties can a player have before they are fouled out and have to return to the locker room? <laughs> so it can be seven unless one of those is an, an egregious penalty, in which case you can be ejected. So if you do something particularly dangerous or thought to be dangerous, not necessarily intentionally, you can just be chucked out. <laughs> Correct. You have been uh, guilty of an egregious penalty? I have not been, no, but I have uh, seen it done. And actually, when I saw it done, it was not something that somebody had intended to do. They just, it was misinterpreted, essentially. But yeah, I've seen it happen. (laughs) Well, that's six for six. We've got question number seven. What is the maximum number of skating referees that can officiate in roller derby? And uh, I'll give you, well, try your best. I'll give you one either way. Okay, okay. So I'm just trying to think about it as sort of inside pack refs and outside pack refs. So that's inside the oval track and outside the oval track. You'd usually have two on the outside and then you've got your head ref. You can, for, for uh, audio medium, I'm counting on my fingers here. <laughs> <laughs> you've got your two outside. Should we say seven? Because it always seems like there's about a million of them. <laughs> It is seven. Oh, there we go. See, and it, see, the fingers helped. The fingers definitely helped. <laughs> Bang on. Still 100%. Question number eight. So this is a vague question, and I'll accept a vague answer for it. Roller derby originated in the mid-1880s, and, and it was evolved from what type of skating event? Oh, that's really good. Um... I get so you're skating in a circle, which I guess is kind of similar to like roller discos, like roller disco dancing or something. Is that? Oh, but but then I guess that's 1880s. Yeah, I don't know that they had disco dancing in the 1880s, did they? <laughs> you can t- you can take the multiple choice, but it would give up your 100 percent record. Oh yeah, like racing, racing, because yeah, disco dancing doesn't make any sense. But skating on a track. Oh, okay. I'll give you. Ariane, I'm, I'm going to give you... Well, God, I feel awful. But I think I, I'm going to give you one point. Because you've got... So the, the vague answer, you're, you're sort of along the right lines. So the, the multiple choice options I was going to give you, it is a skating race. I was looking for... It was actually skating marathons. It was like a skating endurance event, which they used to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> that sounds terrible. It did sound awful. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they used to do skating marathons and then it evolved into uh, skating around the track. And uh, yeah, a bit of a history of a uh, history of the sport, really. Uh, I, I mean, I, I thought that was sort of interesting, especially what else did you have to do in the 1880s? Well, I'll 
apparently in my head go to discos and you big crinoline skirt. <laughs> so <laughs> question <laughs> question number nine. There have only ever been three roller derby world cups, but the same country has won every single one. Which country? Oh, it's got to be America, surely. It is America. It's the USA. USA roller derby. Particularly fearsome. And you were saying you'd watched the World Cup footage. Their games are brilliant. Australia are catching them, though. Australia are catching them. Um, So we'll see. There might be an upset. And England aren't bad either. Yeah. It's honestly, even just a 10-minute YouTube is all you need to truly uh, integrate yourself in the role in the world of roller derby. And your last question, question number 10, what does it mean when a player either passes the star or performs a star pass? So a star pass is when your point scoring player, your jammer, takes off the helmet cover they have on, the elastic helmet cover they have on, passes it to their team's pivot. And that's the person I said has the um, the striped uh, helmet cover on. And that then passes the duties of point scoring and being the jammer to the pivot. Um, and so they then can put that on and then go around and score points on their next pass. So yeah, you're, it's usually done when the jammer cannot get through the pack and is like weeping, trying to, <laughs> trying to get through. Just... It's usually when my soul has died that I pass the star onto the pivot and make it more problem. And that's correct. Another two points. And you know what, Ariane? I said I'd accept a vague answer. I'm going to give you the two points for that previous one. Gives you 20 out of 20. Only only the second person in the history of uh, Quiz the Consultant to get the full marks. So, I mean, if that's not a reason to celebrate, I don't know what is. Dr. Ariane Laws, we have absolutely loved having you on the show today, not only for helping us clear up the deceptively tricky topic of rheumatoid arthritis, but also to revel in your insane knowledge about roller derby. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been really good. Thank you very much. Listeners, you can hear more from Ariane. You can find her on the Medical Take podcast, which can be found on all podcasting platforms. And I will drop a link down uh, in the show notes for that podcast. And, and I encourage you to listen. It's a really great listen. And you can listen all the way back to the first series as well. But that is just about all the time we have for this week's show. Listeners, please don't forget to like follow subscribe to the show leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts we always love to hear from you so please feel free to get in touch you can either do that on our twitter which is at prepaces podcast or via our website prepacespodcast.com but if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show directly with a pay what you can donation it's buymeacoffee.com slash prepaces podcast but for now we're just about out of time Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.